Welcome friends and colleagues. In this period of high holidays, I wish you to have a good and sweet year. You know, many, many years ago, a woman who survived the Holocaust by being hidden in Holland, like Anne Frank, but she survived, taught me the meaning of this traditional greeting. Why a good and sweet year? She said, good may not be sweet. The coming year may be good, but it may not be easy. And sometimes things that are sweet are not good. Therefore, we wish each other a good and sweet year. It should be productive and it should be easy and enjoyable. And this is what I wish to you. Today we're going to leave, to speak about leaving one's parents. Uh, it says, therefore, a man should leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they shall be one flesh. There are many interpretive issues with this verse, but the one I would like to focus on now is the word leave, which is actually not a correct translation. We'll speak for a minute about how this mis misconception that the translation is leave got established. So I'll start with proposing to you that the real meaning of the word Ya'azov, let's hear the verse, Al-Kain, therefore, Ya'azov, a man should leave, Ish, men, Asaviv Imo, his father and his mother, Vedavak Baishto, and he shall cling to his wife, Vayula Basarachad, and they should be one flesh. This word Yazov actually means abandon and forsake. And that is a very raw and a very harsh word in regards to one's parents. How, how can it one abandon and forsake his parents? It certainly seems to go against everything we know. And I'd like to explain it today. I'll do kind of a survey of the interpreters and uh, offer you uh, my own explanation. I hope you like it. So first of all, how do I know uh, that uh, that's what it means? So the answer is that I have a strong suspicion. This verse is so translated in Greek, uh, but I don't have the tools to really determine that. It is listed, uh, at least quoted three times in the New Testament, which is, of course, in Koine Greek. It's quoted in Mark 10.7, Ephesians 5.13, and um, in, in Corinthians um, as well. And I suspect that the translation there is leave. I checked a number of uh, English Bibles, and they all use this word. But you can see that it's not quite like that. So the, what I could do is check the Latin Bible, Vulgate, which is translated from the Hebrew by, by St. Jerome. And I noticed that it uses different words here and in Deuteronomy. 31.6. So here it uses relinquet, which means to leave. 
In Deuteronomy 13.6, there is a two times a promise to first the Jewish nation and then Joshua that your God, Lord God, will not loosen you, lo yarpecha, velo yazveka, and he will not forsake you. So obviously there, when you say he will not, lo yarpecha, he will not let you loose, that has the meaning of leave. And lo yazveka had to have a stronger meaning. So there, uh, Vulgata translates non-demitted, nek derelinquent. Uh, relinquent in Genesis, derelinquent in Deuteronomy. As far as I understand, it's a much harder word. And um, still there is such a bias to translate it as leave that the Dwarim's translation, which is an English translation of the Vulgate, translates not leave thee nor forsake no forsake thee. So even despite the bias in this verse, the same word uh, with the root of ayin zayin base azov means forsake. So this is somewhat a circuitous route uh, to to reaching this conclusion, but it is a simple meaning, and the Jewish commentators understand that. Uh, for example, Gur Arya, super commentary to Rashi. Uh, explains Rashi's approach by noting that how can you say that you should abandon or forsake your father and mother? What sense does that make? We have to also remember that Adam did not have a father and mother. So what sense does this commandment have for him? Uh, some do say that's why it doesn't say therefore Adam should live Adam, which in Hebrew also means man. Uh, doesn't say that, it says ish, a man. A generic applying to whole humankind. But Russian says, I'll, I'll quote it and, and I'll translate it. It says, Ruach HaKodesh Omeretken. Holy Spirit says this. Lesser Arias Livne Noah to forbid uh, immoral relationships to the sons of Noah. To unpack it, let me just point out to you that Rashi does does this twice more. In two other places, he talks about the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. See, for example, Exodus 1.12 and his commentary to Genesis 37.20. I'm not sure if there are other places, but that's offhand what I can recall. Uh, some see this as a tacit acknowledgement of some kind of a redactor. Uh, this Verses are clearly an interposition in the narrative. Rashi wants to say that whoever it was that put it in, it was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it was divine inspiration and not just a redactor in the biblical uh, criticism sense. Just some random person who tried to put things together, fragments together. And that's one explanation. It might mean other things. Uh, anyway, that's not our focus. What I'd like to just uh, explain is that Rashi and his whole interpretive school uh, see syntactic ambiguities, uh, words that don't quite fit, uh, phrases that are not exactly in the sense of the narrative 
to be indications of coded legal meaning. In other words, what would you do if you had limited paper and limited ink? Uh, there's only that much parchment that's available and only that much ink. Uh, this were not the times of uh, the internet and widespread publishing. So what you might do, you might, with a great superior intelligence, um, you might encode much of what you want to say as a secondary, tertiary, and quaternary meanings of verses. So Rashi and his school uh, understand that when you have these things that, quote, don't fit, the indication that there is some legal material which is being uh, coded into the text. Um, in fact, uh, Rashi had a conversation with his grandson, Rashbam, which uh, he records in his commentary to the Torah, Genesis 31, 1 to 3, where, where this issue comes up and is discussed between them. Now, there are other explanations as well. I'll just share with you Siporna, uh, a, a medieval Italian commentator, who says that what it means that even if in order to have to find a wife a man has to leave his father and mother, he should do that. That therefore, even if necessary, putting those words into the verse, uh, he should do it. But of course, that's not a commandment to specifically leave your father and mother. Nobody is commanding a man that he must leave his father and mother. He can cling to his wife and not be disconnecting from his father and mother. But should it become necessary to do that, such as if his chosen one or, or an only available wife may not be in the same town, then he should forsake his father and mother and go and cling to his wife. The commentator that really, I think, um, encompasses this and gives us a major rule of interpretation is Shmuel David Lutzato, Shadal, a fairly recent commentator uh, uh, from Italy uh, who says this. He says that uh, this doesn't mean that every man leaves his parents, I'm reading now, only that the attachment of men to his wife is such that if he was forced to leave either her or his parents, he would choose, quote, in most cases, to leave his parents and not his wife. That's a very interesting parenthetical statement in most of the cases. But moving on, um, this uh, kind of echoes porno, but then he goes on, and by the way, I'm reading from the English translation by Klein, that was published by Jason Aronson Press, uh, on, on our verse in Genesis. And he says this one paragraph, which I think is worthy reading with some skips. This is a cardinal principle in the Hebrew of the Torah, Prophets, Scriptures, Mishnah, Talmud, and Midrashim, that for the sake of terseness, the utmost extreme of a thing will be mentioned in order to include everything short of the extreme, as well as the extreme itself, even though its actual occurrence may be rare. Kind of like Siporna, but he explains this is a principle. This is how things actually work. In other words, again, the principle of terseness, as he puts it. You don't have multiple volumes. You have limited space, limited parchment, limited ink. What you will do is when you give an example, and this goes for all legal material, 
you will give the most extreme example of a case in which the law applies uh, because that will not only tell you what the law is but will also l- show you the outer limit of the law even in such a case and that would be the most extreme case in which the law still applies uh, he quotes some examples like when you meet your enemy's ox you should help uh, unpack it uh, when you see the ass of him who is ill disposed to you, return it to him. That doesn't mean only in that case. You might think that you have to overcome your jealousy and your anger towards this person, and only in that case must you help him. No, it means that's even in that case, but certainly for somebody who is unknown to you or somebody who you love. And then he quotes several examples from the Mishnah and the Talmud uh, of such an example. I'd like to suggest another interpretation uh, that will take care of this problem, I hope. I hope you like it. I hope you consider it truthful and correct. And if not, or if you have something to say at all about it, please let me know at at the email listed on the website, hebrewbibletotheworld at gmail.com. So to start, I will... I have three introductions, as we would say in medieval Hebrew, hagdomis, uh, hagdamot, introductions. One is, this word, they shall be like one flesh. Uh, the word used is basar, which means flesh or meat. Uh, the word has a very strong ring of family to it. That's why Rashi, for example, understands you should be one flesh in a child. Uh, that's not the uh, understanding that um, is usually accepted in the non-Jewish world. And again, I think that's the influence of how it's quoted in the New Testament. But f- when you take a verse such as Genesis 29.1, and many others, uh, Nachmanides quotes one here, and in the verses in Leviticus about forbidden relationships, it's ubiquitous. It has a very string, very strong ring of family. Uh, Moses' prayer for for Miriam when she was stricken with leprosy, etc. Many, many such examples. So, point number one: one flesh means one family. Point number two: the father and the mother. Now the clause or the phrase the father and the mother often means the parents family unit i can bring you verses um, to show that but instead i will acknowledge a talmudic discussion in sanhedrin 85b And the question is simple. In many languages, when you say this and that, there is an ambiguity. Does it mean this and that together as a unit? Or does it mean this or that? Now, there are languages that really distinguish it. Uh, For example, Lithuanian, which is an archaic language, does distinguish it. There are different words uh, for and and or in this conjunction type of a clause of one plus two, one and two. 
But in English it's ambiguous, and so it is also ambiguous in Hebrew. The question there is, the Talmud brings uh, a disagreement between two Talmudic sages on how to understand this expression. And it's about father and mother, but exactly the same expression we're speaking about. 85b was taught, <coughs> it says, men, men, meaning every man who curses his father and mother. Why does it say, ish, ish, every man? To include people who are intersex. Okay. And then it says, who will curse his father and his mother. This is in Leviticus 29. I only know father and mother together. But what about father who is and not mother, meaning father alone, or mother and not father, meaning mother alone? How do you know that, that somebody who curses one of the parents is also liable? It says, a, a completing phrase in that verse, uh, his father and mother he cursed. These are words of Rabbi Yoshe, Josiah. Rabbi Jonathan, jo- Jonathan uh, says, it means this expression, one and two means two together, and it means one each by itself. Until a verse will explain some other place, Yahtov meaning together. And then he shows how that uh, is derived f- uh, from his reading. Uh, they have slightly different ways of reading this expression, and they, of course, have proofs for that. Nevertheless, what you see there is that the verse itself, father and mother, can clearly be understood as a family unit of the parents. Uh, just to explain, uh, a family unit of the parents differs from the family unit of the father and mother. I'm sorry, of, of a husband and wife. The unit of parents is different from the unit of husband and wife. When the child comes into a family, is born into a family, he encounters an already established unit, which runs according to certain unwritten principles. There is an understanding in any uh, family. This is how things work. The child learns that that's normal and it's correct and it's right. It gets imbued with moral authority. And there may be also siblings already there. And the child comes into that and that's what he learns is right. When a man marries or a woman marries, they now establish their own family, which is going to be some kind of a compromise. Uh, one of my teachers used to say that when a man marries a woman, a woman marries a man, it's like an ambassador to a strange country. You find different laws, different language, different traditions. Um, that's why it's good to marry somebody who is from the same culture and the same um, part of the world so that a conflict is minimized. Uh, similarity is really a good thing in marriage. But some difference is also good. Um, the, the Torah forbade to marry a sister, for example, and one of the reasons given is that uh, Rav Shimshin Raphael Hirsch in his commentary says this. One of the reasons, the, the reasons that he gives is that if two people who are too similar marry, they intensify their good parts and their bad parts. So let's say if one person is somewhat tight-fisted and he marries a tight-fisted wife, 
uh, well, their family is going to be very tight-fisted. Or if uh, one is very, uh, shall I say, Germanic and very punctual, and the other one is very punctual, then nobody will ever learn uh, the value and the normality of being a little relaxed and loose with time, etc., etc. Everything that God created in this world has its pluses and its minuses. To be a complete person, you got to be wide open and broad. So, when a man marries a woman, they establish a different family. So, the question now becomes, how do you do that? Now, third Hagdoma, third introduction. And they shall be one flesh. Uh, who, who is they? Who is they in this verse? We have, therefore, men shall forsake his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now, one flesh, you said, means family. Okay. So, um, who is they? So, in English, there is a uh, convention that when you have two actors uh, in the preceding uh, clause, dependent clause, you might say, the dependent clause will need to refer to the most preceding, most proximal um, subjects. For for example, if I say, my parents and their friends went to the theater and they had good fun, they should, according to the English convention, refer to their friends, because they are the ones that are closest. But Hebrew doesn't have that. It's, it's, in a, it's in a real and artificial convention. In Hebrew, they could refer to all the actors in the preceding clause. Well, who are the actors in the preceding clause? Therefore, man should leave his father and his mother. So we have man, father, mother, and cling to his wife. Now, wife has joined. We have four actors here. And I would suggest, and they shall become one flesh, meaning one family. They, sh they refers to all of them. So what's the meaning of it? The husband and the wife and the father and the mother shall become one family. How does that happen? By the man forsaking his country of origin, his family, its ways of doing things, its perspectives, and its uh, unwritten tradition and rules, and clinging to his wife. They, he and his wife, will now create another family unit with its own language, its own rules, its own morality, its own understanding of things. If they successfully do that, then they, the husband, the wife, and the father and the mother, shall become one family. So let's just go over the verse. The verse says, Therefore, men should forsake or abandon the unit of his father and his mother, and the family unit, his father and his mother, in quotes, and cling to his wife. He should now actively work, sometimes perhaps giving more in to his wife, sometimes perhaps prioritizing her perspectives over his own. But they will create some kind of a different family unit that his parents. And only then, all of them will become one family. So this requires of parents to be respectful of their children's uh, family unit and how things run there, what their aspirations are. 
and the children being respectful of their parents, but running their own show, having their own mind. The requirement to respect one's parents does not extend to creating a family in their image. In fact, we have to abandon it. Sometimes there are families ridden by conflict, in which the in-laws are the source of the conflict. It should be managed. Everything possible should be done to prevent the rupture, but sometimes one has to abandon. That would be the extreme case. Until things can be worked out, until the parent unit understands uh, their destructive uh, actions uh, vis-à-vis their children. And then hopefully, with God's help, they should all return and come back as one family. This is all that the verse means. It's all and it's everything. It's a great deal. The reparation for the rapture of men and woman is their family. So their family is the main family in the relationship. And the fathers and mothers need to be forsaken. And then all of them, the children and the parents, can live in harmony as one family. Thank you very much for listening. May Hashem bless you and your families in this coming year with all that is good. Many blessings.